Guidicor, Erendita Chiesta, a fear kid for Jerome William Cox officer, a
More recently here at Orsinotron, I've been running the series Machna and looking at the letters, papers, and, and I remember that I gave myself, I mentioned about the mimetic quality of administration in Ireland. There is a huge difference, if you like, between when you look closely at Collins's writing in relation to what might have been in the poor Greek public service and the urge that was there to actually, as we even have heard it even in more recent times in part of the commemoration discussion, that how good a good thing it was to have continued an unbroken tradition, which of course under close analysis was something that was quite inimical to any kind of social progress, and that was details of that you will find in my discussions on Tom Johnson and the Democratic Program for the first thought. A key objective of TASC was to upend that form of narrow policy making, uninformed as it was by rigorous empirical work or indeed alternative options, that need to demonstrate how good policies could come about from a proactive engagement on structural issues rather than the reactive model of heretofore. It's sort of bottom-up rather than a top-down model. In that way, it was, of course, seeing the importance which would be briefly recognised in European level and then abandoned of cohesion. It sort of put that bottom-up and emphasis on public engagement with politics that could be based on inclusive discussion, inclusive debate on what matters of public policy. And given the dominance of neoliberalism as a paradigm for over four decades, it is hardly surprising that the global influence of the economic right ensured that economic orthodoxies shaped the thinking of those responsible for the making of Irish public policy across all areas. Consequently, there was a dearth of progressive heterodox policy debates over the decades, and tasks set out to change this and it is a change for which we should all be. We are grateful, but I believe the future generations will be even more grateful. By engaging in research and public outreach concerning inequality, democracy and climate justice in the current political, economic and social environment, TASC has increased public knowledge of economic and social policy, been a source of information and ideas as to the improvement of working conditions, and his work has been vital in the facilitation of a just transition to advance climate action and protect livelihoods into communities. And there are lessons in all of this too in relation to what must be the lead role of the state in ensuring an adequate response <coughs> to our climate policies. The inherent flaws and limits of the neoliberal paradigm have now not only been exposed but laid bare for all to see and but they are acknowledged particularly in the wake of hostility responses to the global economic crisis of 2008-9 that is a set of responses that has proved so socially ruinous in many parts of, of Europe. The bad economics at the source of that response, those responses was based on a fallacy of description, an obsession with descriptive economic analysis and quantification of metrics, including a completely meaningless use of gross domestic product that was championed at the expense of deeper analysis with the theoretical adequacy. It was bad economics imposed uh, carelessly and with disastrous results. 
This focus was held and promoted by many who had been influential within the field of economics, and it has created conditions for the dissolution of deeper thought, hard thinking, and for those of us who had always been in favour of seeing economics as part, as well as the craft of social work, but also as being related to philosophy. It was destructive in relation to theoretical imaginative thought or any concept of wonder. Many economists remain stuck in, a <coughs> in an inexorable growth narrative, or at best a green growth narrative. And yet I'm very as Tim Jackson, who is with us today. I'm so delighted to welcome Professor Tim Jackson from Surrey, who has been with us for this meeting today. He, in what is, I think, a very important work, his, 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 his latest work has pointed out that the concept is contradictory in itself. Growth means more throughout. More throughout means more impact. More impact means less planet. Eternal growth precipitates the destruction of everything. <clears throat> A fixation on a narrowly defined efficiency, productivity, perpetual growth, has resulted in a discipline that has become blinkered to the ecological challenge, I suggest, the ecological catastrophe we now face. That narrow focus constitutes an empty economics. I say empty in the sense of it's not drawing on any of the moral impetus that informed some of the best writing in economic theory. And it is one of the great values of Professor Jackson's um, post-growth life after capitalism, that he actually places the economic work of people like John Stuart Mill and also of others, as I would and myself have in previous papers, placed the work of Weber and Keynes and others in the, con the life context of why did they write, what they did, and for what purpose, and what ethical, moral impetus was there. And this is something we have to recover in economics. I think what we have been living through is a kind of social science, which I prefer to call the craft of social work, which no longer is connected, or even attempts to be connected, with the social issues and objectives for which it was developed over centuries. It is incapable of offering solutions to glaring inadequacies of provision as to public needs, devoid of vision, incapable of discussing sufficiency. Neoliberalism, two values, work at the expense of labour, that important distinction that is there in Hannah Arendt, to capture those activities that create the foundations for society to flourish, and which the pandemic revealed as being so essential many of which fall outside the market altogether. <clears throat> we are left thus with a society where labour is denigrated, work is unfulfilling, and the role of the arts and culture is one that has been commodified, residual to what is speculative, rewarded, decorative at best. It wasn't easy for me uh, to write that. And also, I think when I was thinking again in my discussion with Jackson even too, the question of that distinction of Hannah Arendt's. It is about the loss of touch, of touching in the world, but the loss of intimacy.
COVID really reminded me so strongly uh, of this. But of course, the good side of it also is that people were forced to recognize the essential role of the state, not only in responding to what was a pandemic, but in relation to defining the shape and depth of what is to come in relation to the transformations that are forthcoming. The direction that mainstream economics that I have been speaking about has followed recalls that distinction that was there between Plato and Aristotle as to the privileging of the senses. Aristotle had privileged the sense of touch. Plato gave preference to sight for source of meaning, a view that won out in Western practice and would easily move on to what later be the Cartesian fallacy of the distinction uh, between mind and life. It gave us precision and definition, that journey of the, it gave us definition of the illness, but at a cost, perhaps of a missing dimension of social life as experienced beyond the singular experience, as a shared experience beyond the individual. Touch cannot be experienced alone without engagement beyond the self. There are obvious parallels with our contemporary hegemonic economics discipline in the limits that it has set itself and how therefore it has made such bad policies. Inequality is at the heart of the ecological dystopia we face, one that now poses an existential threat. And most economists publishing recently recognise that current levels of income and wealth inequality are as it has been put neither tolerable in a democracy <coughs> nor efficient from an economic point of view, that they aggregate public health risks affecting the whole of society and have potentially devastating consequences for the environment. This has been argued, for example, among those that I have been spoken about by Lucas Chancel in his book on sustainable inequalities. I ask now, can we recover then, and this is so important in your own presence here, and how all your own work over the decades since you were founded is so important. Can we recover the required space, the freedom to craft a much needed new economic discourse, a discourse that would be responsive both to the fundamental needs and aspirations of our citizens and to our global responsibilities in relation to our planet, and such defining challenges as famine, hunger, and mass migration? I ask myself when I use phrases like species failure as to whether in fact it is of the species, is it there in fact to inevitably deal with war and the recover and the continual fear of war, or could it be bit possible to deal with peace and with the values of cohesion in relation to discussion in I have come to the view too often recently that the broken connection with each other with biodiversity, with nature, that I actually must call it a species failure. Does the question of who participates with authority or confidence in the public discourse on the economy, and in what terms not tell us something of the fragile, even empty quality of democracy? Right across Europe at the present time, for example, in relation to countries like ourselves enjoying silence, Suggestion is made that now, when there is such a glaring opportunity for dealing with neglected areas of care and those with the greatest need, we hear warnings about it, 
you must take care of the inflation risk, because it is assumed that the publics of Europe are not capable of understanding the distinction between profit-taking driven inflation and wage inflation. And when you are talking about profit-taking inflation, which we have now, which is in fact for, for, for simple reduces uh, uh, real wages, and this is what is important in the work of task in relation to making economics become something that is understood and something that is discussed with public access. I have said at the beginning of my presidency 11 years ago that there is nothing so complicated that can't be understood if explained properly. And that is why it is so insulting to be telling publics in a way this a priesthood can in fact tell us about the dangers of inflation while the public suffers the loss of provision in relation to care. Do the relationships, for example, then again I must ask, between government research institutes, think tanks, universities, civil society and the media, truly allow for plurality of theoretical and methodological sources? Such questions are fundamental, yet rarely discussed in public forum. And I see such questions, for example, as being very appropriate for the first year, even the first semester at third level institutions, or even at secondary level. We have arrived at a highly critical juncture when the dominant models of economic growth have been proven to damage social cohesion, democratic life, as well as the future of life itself on our fragile, vulnerable planet. Our obsession with inexorable economic expansion expresses, perhaps, a desire to transcend our material limits and rise above the next stage of nature. Yet this growth fixation paradoxically increases the potency of those very, very limits. This impulse to transcendence is there in all of the great movements of thought and being in relation to the history of the world, sometimes religious, sometimes in relation to utopian movements. And it is interesting in a way that Rosa Luxemburg, I think, questioned Marx's uh, limitation in relation to his reliance on material expansion. I think what it is we must realise, what the public, what young people are telling me when they write to me in many cases, is a life beyond such narrow conceptions of what they want in relation to relationships, in relation to the connections that are important to them. We are living through a deadly cocktail of exploding inequalities, massive deregulation, and a globalisation defined solely by trade densities that has precipitated this ecological crisis. I remember one time speaking indeed to a trade union group at one time where people got very irritated that I questioned globalisation. Because people said, oh, there is, whether he likes it or not, it's happening. This is as if I was some kind of illiterate looking. And then later there were discussions among other people about what might be ethical globalisation, some other form of globalisation. The fact is we got what we got with all of the consequences of what it has been delivered, and therefore if in fact our interconnectedness has to be discussed in any moral or ethical way, it has to come quite beyond and the, the defining characteristics of an unaccountable trade. Bruno Latour argues in his book, these three phenomena are united in the conviction shared by some powerful people that while the ecological threat is real, quote, their survival requires the abandoning of any pretense 
and sharing a common future with the rest of the world, precipitating massive investment in climate change denial, the turning away from global connectivity and back to the protection of advantage with the national or even ethnic borders. And one has only to say what is there in the public in its search for authenticity is the disparity in the numbers attending, for example, environmental conferences, regularly in attendance in Europe, the difference between those advocating, for example, a kind of critique of what we have, and those who are simply saying as lobbyists, and if they are from, the other, from one of the continents, they are in fact unregistered lobbyists. While today we are living then under great shadows that cast so much doubt and anxiety, I wish to offer, I hope there is some responsibility in fashion people of tasks to come here, to offer some positive contribution to the debate, and I must constrain myself and attempt to avoid the temptation to fall into a further Erdogan-esque senses of despondency. For example, however late it is heartening to see that the legitimacy of neoliberal market fundamentalism, that near-exclusive fate and the efficiency of the markets, in the superiority of markets over government intervention, in the ability of markets to self-correct, and in the market's ability to deliver political freedom, is now being challenged by even those international organisations in whom trust was perhaps naively or worse still calculatedly played by nations as measures of success, electoral popularity, or for the achievement of suggested communal welfare. Even such organisations are now seeking a new approach. Yet such a radical paradigm shift is needed in moral, theoretical policy and accepted consciousness levels and with urgency if we are to have any hope of steering our shared future on this planet towards a sustainable, flourishing one. Such a shift would go some way to mitigating the democratic crisis restoring trust amongst the citizenries, a trust so lost in the wake of austerity and the current rise and rise of the unaccountable, which constitutes this most significant threat to democracy, even in what described it, in, what, in those places that describe themselves as the developed world. The rise and rise of the realm of the unaccountable is the most fundamental, dangerous threat to democracy. <coughs> Multilateral bodies seem to have accepted too, which is good that we need such a fundamental and radical paradigm shift, not just in relation to economics, but in terms of our very way of living, our broken connections, new ideas, new movements, and crucially a sharing consciousness between these movements, social, economic, and ecological, are thus now required and even more, their effective communication to citizens, Ideas based on equality, universal public services, equity of access, sufficiency, sustainability. New ideas are fortunately available in the form of practicable suggestions for an alternative paradigm of social economy with ecological responsibility. But critically, they must find their way onto the public street. They must find their way onto the curriculum in the places where economics is being taught. And thankfully, we now have a richer discourse in intellectual terms than perhaps we did a decade and a half ago at the last point of crisis. Thanks to the scholarly contributions, Andrea Hatt and Jackson, I've mentioned, happily with us today, Ian Goff, Anna Coote, Mariana Mascata, 
Sylvia Walby, Kate Rowland, Pat Kirby, Mary Murphy's with us, and others who have advanced ecologically sustainable and socially progressive alternatives to our destructive failed model. This scholarship has been suggested for some time now. The real emancipatory potential for a new recovered political economy and I have over the years too been speaking about on third level institutions both in Ireland and abroad to ensure that its elements are allowed space to be taught and thus for it to be available to inform a pluralism in thinking and ultimately in policy. Some years after I had just been come president of Ireland, I had attended a meeting with Howard Stein, and we were looking at new research that showed that the history of economic thought was not at 12% right across North America, the United States and Canada, that people introduced to economics were not introduced, and I mention only to the context of the writing of the great pillars of good economic thought, but actually the history of the subject itself. Thus, what one had was a very narrow producing of what I would call, quite frankly, uh, uh, one-trick ponies in econometrics. <laughs> the question of how economics is taught and encountered as developed almost as I've said, as Stan has written, is a matter of the utmost importance. I believe that failure to facilitate a pluralism of approaches in teaching economics is a deprivation of basic student rights indeed citizen rights, leading as it does to the narrow, blinkered and distorted education in economics and the wider social sciences that I have described. Students are entitled not only to pluralism and the declaration as to assumptions of competing models in what is thought, but to be able to find intellectual and practical fulfilment in their engagement with ideas, ideas that will in turn be an influence on the options in advocated policy and their life contribution. I emphasise this point given the task's core objective of promoting education for the public benefit and I salute that. As to the new paradigm, consideration of a new ecological social model based on the pluralism and context in which economics and in economic life is embedded, we must acknowledge the importance of the limits to resiliency the limits of the world's natural resources, as well as acknowledge the role that unrestrained greed, largely unaccountable as I have suggested, has played in creating the climate crisis. The suggested new paradigm we work together to seek must offer a balanced connection between economics, ecological sustainability and ethics. Recognise the depth of the change that is required and going further, it must envisage a more equal and moral society one in which the state plays a role as a provider of quality universal services for its citizens, services that are seen as an investment in society rather than a burden. It recognises the importance of diversifying power, the critical role of women's voices, and feminist leadership and consciousness in every policy area, such as Jenny Stevens has advocated in diversifying power. It is beginning to achieve a consensus in parliaments that new policy instruments will be necessary. Policies that must simultaneously pursue both equity and social justice, as well as sustainability and sufficiency. Goals within an activist, innovative state with substantial public investment and greater regulation and planning. Investment functions of social policy must be enlarged so as to become more closely integrated with climate action investment. We are told, as I have just said, of 
record surpluses in the Exchequer Conference, 10 billion for 2023, over 16 billion predicted for 2024. Let us not forget that this surplus has been made possible by an educated and hard-working population, as well as by the final decisions of foreign direct investment. Now is the time to invest in our connection, I suggest, with nature. This is what the message we're getting from our younger generations, and older ones too, is less nature's lessons and resilience we must draw on to achieve a more sustainable, fulfilling and healthy world. We must redefine our politics so that it becomes earth-focused rather than national-focused. We must enable a more active participatory, fulfilling version of society, one where citizenship <coughs> is defined as licensed, not one which is citizen is simply defined as some kind of license to insatiable consumption, where the glittering price is the promise of immortality itself, to quote in Jackson. The most effective welfare states in the world promoted universalism as a core principle. And we can think back of those in the Nordic countries and the social democratic models adopted in several other European nations as exemplars. Exemplars who must hold their ground. Thus an effective eco-social paradigm requires a universalist mindset, one that is, fun it is fundamental as a compass, as are additional targeted measures to mitigate regressive impacts of decarbonisation policies, for example, on lower-income groups, something that is being addressed in Ireland. In Ireland, this will mean a just transition that can be achieved for those impacted by the closure of unsustainable carbon-intensive electricity production, for example, who must be offered reskilling opportunities to enable re-employment in other suitable areas, such as the green economy or upskilling opportunities that can achieve sustainable income in other parts of society. But most importantly, who have been given the security of basic needs having been met. We must anticipate now, where before we allowed ourselves to await the impact of change, we must communicate inclusively. And I see, in fact, the role of Thomas, the role of the trade union movement, the role of civil society and others, as in fact being the leaders, not responding, but being the leaders in the definition of where we are now in relation to so many new challenges. I strongly support participative decision-making models such as that advocated in the People's Transition. Task report from 2020, which views climate action as an enabler of local development, giving people and communities ownership of the transition to zero-carbon societies, and enhancing public support as it does for a just transition by tackling inequality and raising standards of living through the delivery of climate solutions. And may I add that policies that promote genuine regionalism can also be a central institutional space for measures leading to a just decarbonisation. I've often thought it's a long, long time since I wrote about the case for regionalism and how we were stuck with this imposed version of the county managerial system, which one is only just want to see its deficiencies just look at the outcomes in relation to housing and planning and environmental management. As we adjust then to our post-pandemic reality, I suggest that now is the time to consider some first-order questions. How are we to live responsibly in the world in an interconnected way? How should we seek to be in the world 
and these weighty questions are considered, as are mentioned by people such as Professor Hartmut Rose in his book Resonance, in which he argues for the need for society to move away from consuming the world to experiencing it and resonating with it. Quality of life, after all, cannot be measured simply in terms of material resources and their use of consumption. Space for creative opinions, experiences and moments of happiness. Well, we must consider our relationship to our resonance with, as if it were throbbed with the world, a world where relationship and meaning takes precedence over profits and power. And again, using the language of Jackson or the insights offered by Rosa, it is only by accepting our fragile material condition that we can hope to attain something higher through artistic creation, human connections, solidarity. I say myself how important it is, intimacy and relation to species, tendency to flock the way that people come together in the seeking of harmony, of love in our lives, given our existence, as what I have called in earlier papers as migrants in time. This important recent work to which I refer is helpful for understanding how the catastrophe of resonance, quoting Hartmut Rosa, which we have experienced in contemporary society, is directly related to the growing narcissism, aggressive individualism and emphasis on insatiable consumption and wealth accumulation as a desirable, even inevitable version of a life of fulfilment. As the late Sigmund Bauman put, Sigmund Bauman put it, an invitation to become consumed in our consumption. Or as Tim Jackson put it, Discontentment is the motivation for our restless desire to consume. The success of consumer society lies not in meeting our needs, but in its spectacular ability to disappoint us. Our obsession with more relentlessly obscures the fragile balance of the human heart and denigrates the poetry that might, that might return it to us. Defining our need for belonging and experiencing it together is so important. I'm so pleased when I recall, for example, the splendid solidarities and great moments in the past that Sabine and I participated in, in different agitations, and which I refer to in my poem uh, of Saturdays Made Holy. Belonging to a territory is a phenomenon most in need of rethinking and redefinition. We must learn new ways to inhabit our shared vulnerable planet, seeking ourselves primarily, seeing ourselves primarily as world citizens with a duty to the planet's protection and the care and sustenance of others. To build cohesion and solidarity, we need it has been suggested by what is a diversity now of scholarly and spiritual thinkers and writers, a new social contract, one that fosters a more generous, inclusive society which would also share risks more collectively. Menuke Shakti presents a compelling case for such a new social contract between citizen and state. In an automat, a sense capabilities approach, such a society would, born, would broaden opportunities, she, she suggests, asking citizens to contribute for as long and in the form that they wish to, thus enabling everyone to fulfil their potential. Shafiq identifies the key elements of a more generous social construct, one founded on solidity, solidarity and harmony, one that recognises our interdependence, shared inevitabilities, vulnerabilities, 
supports and invests more in each other to build a more inclusive, cohesive society together. One which gives authentic delivery of the social justice, solidarity, equity principles that are the aspiration underpin the framework for the Sustainable Development Goals, perhaps our greatest achievement in recent times as a moment of hope, global solidarity and empathy, and which must not be sidelined by our present involvement in war. As to our future then, I believe the task is among those bodies well placed to play an important role in the great contest of ideas that are sharing, turning into action, that we need to embark on engaging all of society inclusively, to have a debate on the great fundamental issues that will shape the future direction of public policy in this country. Do we want a society committed to promoting decent, dignified standards of human behaviour? A society that fosters a rich and holistic understanding of work as a source of personal dignity and freedom, stability, fulfilment, prosperity in the community, democratic flourishing and a solidarity with other workers in Ireland and abroad? Or would we prefer to continue on the path in which so many of our fellow citizens find themselves trapped, one marked by chronic job insecurity, zero-hour contracts, unstable, precarious, low-paid temporary jobs and other so-called innovations of productivity that are increasing the numbers who are now termed, who termed precarious. Do we want a society where children and the elderly are provided with adequate care and where people with disabilities and their families can avail of appropriate support? Or would we prefer a laissez-faire model, one in which the privatisation agenda remains hegemonic, where the value of the state and the services it provides remains a source of derision, a terrible legacy of distorting the world of work and devaluing care and caregiving? Do we want to bequeath to our children an Ireland where everybody will have access to nutritious food, clean water, adequate housing, good health care, childcare and education, irrespective of their ability to pay for this, those basic social Or do we wish to pursue a means-tested, two or even three-tiered system of access to services with all its exclusionary and inequitable outcomes, and sustain a bureaucracy that will seek to ever interrogate those as to their means? The challenge for all of us here today is therefore to find a way of building with all our distinctive contributions an alternative to that hegemonic discourse that casts competitiveness, productivity, efficiency as the ultimate purpose of economic activity and inexorable growth in output and trade as an end in itself. We are challenged to rebalance economy, ecology and ethics. We are challenged to craft a socially accountable version of the economy challenged to restore a hierarchy of purpose whereby economic objectives, tools and measures are designed to serve the fundamental objectives of human flourishing. I suggest that all of the prevailing ruling concepts in our present economic discourse flexibility, globalisation, productivity, efficiency, innovation, indeed economic growth itself, are capable of being redefined within an active citizen participatory state context, given a shared moral resource, reimagined sustainability within the context of the new ecological social model. And I believe that this is part of the search for authenticity that is there not only in Ireland but in the world. These are challenging times then on so many levels, but I ask has there ever been a more appropriate time to envisage our future utopia, 
Notwithstanding the distance we find ourselves from achieving such an outcome, we must dare to dream it, to offer its outcome and continue to play our part as advocates for a paradigm shift such as that to which I have spoken in my address. A paradigm that places an entrepreneurial state at the centre of social and economic objectives, a paradigm of universal basic services, a paradigm which recognises that inequality is not inevitable, but rather the outcome of exclusionary, inequitable, badly sourced policy. Such a paradigm has, I believe, the capacity to gain mainstream acceptance and is not only an important gesture towards intergenerational solidarity, it is our only hope as a global people of avoiding ecological and social catastrophe. Some talky, exturing a hair in a socialist atmosphere, a tardy of the silhouette. The mother, lish on talky at all the crow. I have no doubt the task will continue to play a crucial role in achieving the social and economic change that is required to which I have referred and to deliver the sustainable alternative which I know is possible. Mila Buikas, Baba.